head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he knows doing something great is overrated. It's Andy Greenwald! That's true, except in the case of LCD Sound System Something Great, which is That's properly true. rated. Which was probably what Colin Zabel was listening to. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the night before. Uh, and we are going to be talking about Mayor of Easttown's momentous fifth episode today on The Watch. We're also going to be talking a little bit about Underground Railroad on Amazon. And we'll talk a little bit about Hacks, which is on the HBO, HBO Max channel. And we're also going to talk a little bit about HBO Max in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Because undoubtedly, the biggest story of the weekend, the biggest story that came out yesterday was the news that AT&T was, and, and help me with my nomenclature, mm-hmm. help me with my vocab, sure. especially, essentially unwinding their position in Warner Media. Uh, <laughs> I, I, love, I, I love that um, you have now adopted the talk of Wall Street, or the yes. street in London. Yeah, yes. Right? Uh, so Just be, you watch, watch his industry once. This is a huge, huge story. I don't it know is. whether Andy and I can do it justice in terms of our understanding of john malone's tax friendly like boy it was like the it's like a retro morris tax agreement that he that this guy used the guy he's like in, in charge he's basically like owns discovery essentially john mm-hmm. malone is a legendary sort of media titan and essentially has like engineered this deal with at&t to merge discovery which owns HGTV, it, has, it owns the OWN Network, uh, several reality-based, uns- non-scripted... Food Network, yeah. Yeah, Food Network uh, networks, uh, channels, and all the IP that's attended to it with it. And it has its own streaming service, Discovery Plus. And they are merging with Warner Media. Warner Media was this... Obviously, we've known it over as Warner Brothers, we've known it as Time Warner over the years. It's essentially HBO, CNN, TNT... Chris, we briefly knew it as part of AOL. That's right, we did. And, you know, this is a long and winding road to get to this point, but essentially AT&T emptied the bank to get this thing. Well, they didn't empty the bank. They're, they still have some money left over. They're but they, they went through a long and arduous uh, antitrust sort of investigation or antitrust like hearings about whether or not they should be able to buy Warner Media in the first place. They buy it. They launch HBO Max after some early stumbles. I think you could argue that HBO Max is having quite a successful run between Godzilla, between some of the shows that they have on. I think that slowly but surely building. And then news this weekend that AT&T has decided to get out of the, basically the content business, out of the media business. It's pretty stunning. Let's start with this. Everybody knew and predicted that there were some big mergers to come that the media landscape as it is right now is unsustainable because of the ever-widening gulf between the have-everythings mm-hmm. and the have-a-couple-things. The have-everythings include the richest company on the planet, Apple, 
mm-hmm. the company owned by the richest man on the planet, Amazon, the biggest media company on the planet, Disney, and Netflix, which has the most eyeballs and the deepest footprint and the longest track record of doing this. Especially, glo- a, especially globally. Yeah. Increasingly globally. They got into that very early too. So then there's a big gulf. So we knew some things were happening, but I don't know if anybody saw this coming. And to go through it point by point, the biggest reason no one saw this coming is because this is still pretty new. AT&T made this aggressive play into the content business by taking over what would become Warner Media just three years ago. And at the time, the argument was, well, it's a little bit of an uncomfortable marriage because they do kind of different things, but can't blame Stanky Vision, John Stanky, the CEO, for for thinking big, for being aggressive, something that he was known for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although, as the New York Times points out, some of his aggressive plays have maybe not worked out so well, such as the acquisition of DirecTV just a few years before this whole thing. Which they have also... Unwound their position. Part, partly, yeah. And the idea, I guess, is at least this is in terms of our level of understanding of global finance three years ago, was this puts Game of Thrones on everybody's phone. This increases the, uh, you know, the reach and the window of HBO programming in a sort of sexy, investor-friendly way and also puts AT&T, which was kind of a, you know, solid phone, uh, fiber optic cable company into a much more glamorous position. And that in turn led to some culture friction that we don't fully know the story of. It was it the, dr- the dream of vertical integration that you would have your, your phone plan and your, mm-hmm. everything is coming through the same, the same office, right? Yes. I think there were a couple offices though, for example, HBO being, you know, at least by its own conception of itself, a very like happening New York company, Mm-hmm. Um, spend big, get a lot of awards, nice long lunches. And that was sort of the Richard Plepler era, who's a, who's a legend in the industry and was the president of HBO and left after this merger. And there was a lot of other upheaval along the way. So I think that there was some thought that especially after the bumpy launch of HBO Max, not just bumpy because of the confusing name and branding that we've talked about at Infinitum on this podcast, but just Despite everything, it's still not as big as other things. Sure. You mentioned HBO Max having stabilized itself recently. I think that that's true um, from a perception standpoint. I think it has a clear footing now, and it kind of knows what it's trying to do by putting the theatrical movies on it, by building its originals brand, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of that credit goes to Jason Kalar, who took over Warner Media, and we'll talk about him in a second. But the speculation in the town was that there might be a deal to be made between Warner Media, still owned by AT&T, and Comcast Universal. Yep. That maybe the HBO Maxes and Peacocks, which are still resolutely in the second, if not second point five or third tier of streaming services, could team up and then be a juggernaut that could at least stand on semi-equal footing as the big boys. What's shocking about this is that it appears that Discovery, run by one of the last lions of programming, David Zaslav, this might be a deal of a century for them because Discovery makes a ton of money and is a successful company in its own right, without question. But it's not the kind of money-making operation that people are looking to as a long-term success story because it's still resolutely old media. Like, do you remember when, Chris, when we were still in magazines, we'd be like, oh, you know, we think that Spin still has a window to attract people who buy records or also like the internet or Blender's going to get, and then be like, let's look at what magazines sell. And mm-hmm. they were all bridal magazines mm-hmm. and cooking light or whatever. Like that's actually magazines. And it's kind of similar to when we talk about TV, when we're like, I may destroy you as the most important thing on TV. And 15 million people are like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over young Sheldon, which isn't to disparage young Sheldon. It's just what we consider popular and what we consider cool might not be what America writ large thinks is cool. And so Discovery prints money from, you know, the the Property Brothers at all. But that's still a cable company business, at least as currently constituted, right? Yeah. And so all of a sudden, those guys now have not just like a little bit of premium clout, they just got HBO. So 
I want to I want to do two things here. I want to play this out because I, I agree with you that in some ways this actually makes a lot of sense. Like it seems weird uh, on the top. First of all, it seems weird that AT and T would go through all the trouble to do this and then get cold feet, especially when they saw and, like, my roaming charges this month. You know, yeah, well, I thought ba- that alone <laughs> roaming charges. <laughs> I haven't I'm heard doing that my, one in a while. I'm doing my part, Stanky. I think also like what Discovery has is hours. They have innings pitched. Like when yes. you add this library to a pre-existing HBO Max library, yes, is it going to if you were to say, let's put it all under one umbrella, does it become complicated to sort through? Does it feel weird to have the Turner Classic Movies library and the Sopranos and all of um Cake like Boss? all of the the flipping out or the Waco show or whatever, not the Waco show like David Gresh, the the one with Chip and Joanna. What's that one called? A common mistake. <laughs> we shouldn't call it the Waco show. It's just, that's yep. my note. Um, that's that's just like a guy who goes out every five days and pitches six and a half, seven innings. Do you know what I mean? Like those will be so many hours spent on that service of people who are like, like my mom, like people who are just like, all I want to do yeah. is have HGTV on for 11 hours of the day when I'm in or out of the room, when I want to watch six in a row, when I want to be making dinner and it's on in the background. Like there are people out there who just want this on as a nightlight. And I don't think that HBO Max, as currently constituted, has many things other than Friends that are like that. Other yeah, than like, Friends, Big Bang Theory. I mean, it 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 is was trying to build that business and was investing wisely in it. But as we've been saying a bunch over the last few weeks and months, sure, we haven't really been talking, maybe aside from Queen's Gambit, about like a buzzy Netflix show. But mm-hmm. that doesn't matter because one million episodes have nailed it in Flora's Lava and The Circle. That's keeping the lights on and then some. And yeah. you need to hit that high-low balance. So you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right in that 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 is the thinking behind this. And that makes so, some model of sense. In all the articles, the Hollywood Reporter, Kid Masters wrote a really great piece about this. Uh, Lucas Shaw wrote a great piece about this. And Bloomberg, there have been a lot of takes about this. Brooke Barnes just did some more reporting for the New York Times. But I saw a quote, and I, I feel bad because I can't remember whose piece this showed up. And I think it was in the Times. But there was an analyst, a market analyst named Ed Moya, who had this this comment that I thought would be useful for our conversation. Quote, now we have three titans of media, which should mean spending wars for content will likely crush the smaller streaming services. Costs will eventually go up and the consumer might actually miss the days of cable TV and adding a couple of premium channels. Is that where we're headed? I think it's... Are we going back to the big three? Well, it it, it seems like it because as I alluded to at the beginning, I don't know if we're done. I don't know if we're done here. No, there's a, there's a rumor out there already that like NBC Universal might be looking at at, at a Viacom. That's the thing I was going to say next. Th- this could be a we cannot beat them. We're going to have to join up moment. Mm-hmm. And to go from where we were a few years ago to where we were, I mean, screw it, to where we were last year when Comcast, Universal, Warner Media, and um, CBS, Viacom, Paramount, whatever we're calling it. All were launching their own services to get in, to mm-hmm. begin the first campaign of what was expected to be a longer war. And now we're at a point where NBC and CBS are the last two people against the wall being like, should we do this? <laughs> like, how do we get to Careless Whisper playing at the middle school dance? It's weird to have grown up in a quickly. world where those two things were like very distinct yes. entities. Like NBC was not to be confused with CBS. It's not like you ever would be like, oh, a CBS show that could just slide right into NBC Thursday nights. Like, so I'm still trying to get my mind around it like that. We're now in the asset accumulating business. And what's so odd about what's waiting at the other end of this, potentially, if this just continues at this pace, is we're going to end up with a box with everything in it, even the stuff that doesn't fit. And that used to be called TV. Mm -hmm. Like we've almost done a complete rotation of sense with untold billions spent. That's what I'm saying. Just yeah. to be, none of it, frankly, none of it makes sense. It, 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 it's very, it's very, very confusing. I don't see, I, I don't want to be, I can't predict the future. None of us can. I also don't want to be necessarily, I don't want to be knee jerk pessimistic about things, but I don't see a world where this is particularly good creatively. You know, because one of the things that has rung out over the last year, even 
when it wasn't as noisy as it suddenly feels like it is today was that point of view, sense of taste, programming acumen, that all still matters somehow. Mm -hmm. And it's what kept FX thriving and surviving to the point when they could just basically have a 10-year track position in the Walt Disney Company to do what they want. It's what kept HBO at the forefront, not just of award-winning and cultural conversation, but like, you know, our podcast, like we still talk about HBO shows because they still stand out. Yeah. And internally at Warner Media, that seemed to be recognized because what had initially been a two-track solution, right, where Casey Bloys and HBO can keep doing their thing, but Kevin Riley, ex-Fox, ex-FX, ex-TBS, and Bob Greenblatt, who had saved NBC 10 years ago, were charged with building up HBO Max to do a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. That already feels like that happened a million years ago. Was that six months ago? That those guys left and Casey got control of the whole thing. And and then and Jason Kalara was brought in. And then just now, as we were going to record, there was a report in the New York Times that Jason Kalara is negotiating his exit from So let's talk about that briefly. Um, again, this is not gen we we aren't the business podcast, but we have a you know a slight perception of of who these people are and what they what they bring to the company. When this deal started to be announced yesterday, immediately people who know more than we do zeroed in on the fact that Jason Kalara, a 50-year-old very savvy, very successful guy in this industry. He was the first CEO of Hulu, jumped over to Warner Media, and pretty quickly, at least on the outside, kind of whipped it into shape. He was the one who promoted Casey, uh, who pushed out Greenblatt and Riley, clearly, clearly led the the strategy for putting the Warner Brothers movies directly on HBO Max. And I think, you know, not with the gentlest hand, seems to have given HBO Max the kind of identity that could have could carry it. That said, the thing that really jumped out to me in the New York Times story was if you take away, and I assume this is how they got this number, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, if you take away people who subscribe to HBO through cable, like they always did, it says mm-hmm. HBO Max has 20 million subscribers. Which is that's, no bueno compared to, the, compared to everybody else, yeah. And that's, that's a yikes. Um, I'm sure that the, the actual number with people who are getting it through HBO subscription is, is considerably higher, but still, that's not where you want it to be. But that anyway, that Kalar's there, 50-year-old guy, Zaslav runs Discovery, well-liked, but also seems to be well-respected. Like, he, he has big dinner parties and influences stuff and has a Hampton, so like the, the old swashbuckling type of media executive. Yeah. Um, Just loves to, to get down to Waco every once in a while. <laughs> listen, you're going to have to dig yourself out of this one. Ten, but 10 years, Kalar Sr., how was this going to work? And clearly they both thought the same thing because Chris, as Chris just said, it was just as we're going to record, it seems like Kalar's on the way out. Well, you and me are like two decades older than Kaya. We get along great. Until we see her as a, as a threat. Until she just like now, until she takes over the pod. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is inevitable. And frankly, <laughs> probably overdue. But, but that's bold, you know, because I think that people... A week ago, everyone's like, well, Clark's got to figure it out. And so what happens with him not there and where does he go? I, I think, again, we have no inside knowledge on this. But to the point I was making before about how HBO continues to distinguish itself and differentiate itself, Casey Bloys, who's the chief executive, who's the programming executive of HBO and now HBO Max, I would imagine is more than safe because they need to preserve that. I mean, that's the asset that they're acquiring here, not just him, but that you know the the jewel box that has always been HBO and 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 the content library. So it's wild. Does Kalar go to where does he go? There was just this musical chairs where everyone there are tons of job changes at at, at Warner Brothers at yeah. Netflix at, and there at, will be more um, restructuring. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not like everybody gets to when they do these kinds of things. It's very rare that everybody's just like so. We just get one bigger office and everybody gets the same. Like there are going to be so many redundancies. There's going to be so many things where we're trying to decide. They're trying to decide what's the strategy forward. And it, you know, it, it's too bad because I it, obviously, first of all, it can you know thoughts for people losing losing their employment. But I think that ultimately, the reason why you and I like are interested in stories like this is the same some of the same reasons why say like there's a fascination with um front office machinations in a in a sport like in the NBA or even something like the European Super League in soccer where there are these sort of big chess moves that might shape the way you get to watch and appreciate something that you love 
So Andy and I obviously love TV. I love European football. Like we love these things. But more and more, obviously these stories about the financial sort of machinations of these things that we love are becoming the actual story rather than the thing itself. You know, it's it's more like these conversations about mayor or railroad or hacks or whatever are kind of like happening in their own little bubbles. Mm-hmm. But then the these massive stories about Wall Street upheaval and and deals and consolidation and 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 mergers and acquisitions wind up becoming actually the mainstream cultural stories. And I don't think that's good for culture at all. I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's a good development in the same way that I'm not entirely sure that our obsession with front office stuff in sports is good for the sports. I agree. And I also don't know, and I truly don't know how this will shake out, if it's good or bad. But rewind about 10 years, and it's a, obviously it's a completely different landscape. One of the things that was kind of interesting to look at TV 10 years ago, or even a little bit before that, 15 years ago, and the transformation, yeah, let's say 15 years ago, that what became you know the, a, a golden generation for TV, according to many, was that we were looking at more or less an equal playing field. Obviously, HBO always spent more than other uh, services and channels. But because of cable still being dominant, pay cable TV, all these channels had carriage fees, right? So whether you watched ESPN or AMC or Food Network or whatever, if you had cable, you were paying for them. You paid them directly. What allowed a flowering of pretty exciting content was that these channels that prior to a certain year were just like, right, we can just, you know, run Shawshank Redemption marathons and cash checks. We're like, well, we could do more than that. Mm-hmm. We could get into the originals business. We could not just as a potential source of profit, which is what drives everything in capitalism, but also we could get more attention. We could get more notice. We can get awards. We could actually even make something good. Right. And so you have, you know, this is obviously a famous example you have AMC picking up two desk drawer scripts that have been passed over everywhere else in Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And then ultimately something that had a busted, I don't think it ever filmed a pilot, but it had been busted elsewhere, its development in The Walking Dead. And just completely transforming the landscape of TV through those three shows mm-hmm. is kind of exciting. And I, I don't want to be the guy <laughs> at earmuffs, but I don't want to be the old guy saying that things used to be better or more interesting because I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but I do think that's a different energy to be like, we're going to go all, we're going to, we're going to zag because everyone else is zigging and that's what's going to matter to us versus a landscape where each one of these massive corporations, these behemoths have their tent poles as we've been discussing forever now, and we'll continue to discuss forever. Disney is in the Marvel and Star Wars business primarily, and that's the business. And then what happens on the margins Sure, you could make a Amazon will be like, sure, we'll, we'll go into business with Barry Jenkins because it would be cool right. to win Oscars or Emmys. Um, that's like a it's like the de Medici's giving a painter or something, you know, but that's not the business and it, it's not their core business. And I'm not really sure if does is it great that it still gets made and hopefully things like that will continue to get made in this new era? Yes, but there is a certain kind of creativity that comes from hunger and outsiderness and i know look i'm talking no, about no, no. like amc which was owned by msg i, think I, I know that it, it sounds like we're talking about like punk rock labels yeah, it's in not the, that in the 19 it's not like we're talking about discord you know what i mean we're talking about huge corporations that were then bought by behemoth corporations and consolidated and lost maybe some of the identity that we thought they had here's the thing that i think matters that's worth noting when the era that Andy is referring to as the quote-unquote golden age, which I think there's a lot lot of critiques that you could level at those shows sure. that maybe we didn't make at the time, and there are all sorts of discussions to be had around those shows. But what those shows did and what the promise of that era was, was that at a time when starting in 08, movies increasingly moved to a blockbuster or bust mm-hmm. model, and you know the superheroes start to go up and up from Iron Man and Dark Knight in 08, to, to the point where that is the main business of most of the major film studios now is to make movies like that, make movies with franchise potential, make movies with huge expanded universe potential, huge IP potential, growing, growing, growing. And during right in that time, you get a bunch of shows that not only seem to capture the true artistic potential of television in terms of a long-form storytelling format, but also took up that middle ground that 
American or, or movies in general, movies for adults used to have, which was you go see a film and it's not for your, your 12 year old kids. And it's, it's, it is actually like an adult drama or an adult comedy or an adult, even thriller. And it didn't have to be Star Wars. It didn't have to be Jaws. It didn't have to be Raiders. It didn't have to be. And then, you know, increasingly as your Marvels and DCs emerge, it just feels like there's fewer and fewer places for those kinds of stories. They were found on television. I think they still are. I think mm-hmm. that we're we're being a little hysterical here. But I do think that there is a world in which in five years, we're looking at whatever HBO Max is as a streaming service. And a majority of it is house hunting shows and throne spinoffs. And you could say that's, TV has always been majority yes. stuff yeah. that isn't remarkable with a few things that are. And I bet and I 80% think that of the people listening to this pod would be like, that sounds pretty good. It also sounds pretty good for five nights of the week. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's yeah, yeah. that's fine. We all have nights like that. I think that what I'm, maybe what we're reacting to, and it's it's probably worthwhile to mention, this isn't Discord records or whatever, but there is a music business analogy here, which is that in the 80s and into the 90s, obviously, first and foremost, what you're fans of are is the music and the bands and artists that make the music. But it was, and again, this is a bygone era, it's fine, but it was possible to also be, to a degree, fans of labels. And not just Matador and Sub Pop because they aligned with your values or they signed the bands that you loved that were defiant of the mainstream. But there was a moment when like Seymour Stein at Sire or Sylvia Rohn at Elektra or Geffen and all the people that he put in charge those major labels had identities too. There was a Warner Brothers sound. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying we should root for them, but it was kind of interesting. And it was an exercise in curation. And it could tell you something about the taste and what you aligned with and what it was maybe going to be. Eventually, all of that went away due to squabbling and fighting and the little fish being swallowed by the big fish being swallowed by the behemoth. And now, essentially, what we're fans of is the app. The app that we're on right now, but yep. the app swallowed all of that, and now it's just inside that box. And that might kind of be a, a foreshadowing of what we're headed towards. Where, yeah, we're a fan of a show. But we're also maybe we're a fan of a creator, and then we're a fan of a network or programmer who has a certain sensibility. Or, a, but now we're just going to be fans of the box, which it's, maybe we already are. Maybe but we are. It's are. a different way of interacting with it, and w- it remains to be seen what. It remains to be seen how the special stuff will be treated. Maybe it'll be protected now. Maybe. Maybe this should be the Renaissance Italy. Go back to the court, com- you know, and the de' Medici's kindness will allow us to continue to have worthwhile, well, interesting, thought-provoking shows. Let's, let's talk see. about some shows that make TV worth watching, because I think we have a few of them right now. We have, we have three have- of them tonight. So this is actually, yeah, we should switch our vibes because this is a pretty good time at the moment. So we're going to obviously spend a lot of time towards the end of the podcast talking about the episode of Mayor. So would you want to talk about Railroad, or you want to talk about Hacks first? Let's build up to Mare, because I think that when we talk about Hacks Underground Railroad, um, Hacks, we've seen at least two episodes. Two episodes have been put up on HBO Max. Underground Railroad, all 10 are streaming on Amazon. Um, I think Chris and I have watched one, and we kind of wanted to just talk generally about it since I wasn't here at the end of last week. Yeah, I, talk, I, watched, I watched another one, so I've watched two of them. But, but uh, I think for both, we'll have less spoilery conversations. Mare will be spoiler-filled. Mm-hmm. Hacks and Underground Railroad are going to be a little more general because we want to watch them with everybody together. Yeah, so I think what we'll try to do with uh, with Underground Railroad is do a couple of check-ins uh, because I don't think it's something that most people are going to be able to digest in one weekend anyway. So let's let's start there. Okay. Um, so Underground Railroad, based on the Colson Whitehead novel, won the Pulitzer Prize, written and directed by Barry Jenkins. He wrote um, the. I think he wrote two of the episodes and then had other writers work. Developed on and yeah. created yeah, yeah. the project and then. Yeah. Um, worked on the scripts and directed with a bunch of his usual collaborators, most notably Nicholas Bertel, who does the music for Barry Jenkins' movies, but also for succession and and James Laxton, who I believe knows how God intended to light the world. Yes. One of the most consistently breathtaking, uh, cinematographers working, um, obviously along with the genius director. So this maybe is a great pivot point for the conversation because I don't know. And this is just from one episode. I don't know of an example of, and, and we could talk forever about the emergence of uh, TV as a directorial medium and all the great directing work that's being done, major film directors, uh, 
stooping as they used to, they would have said in the past to work on the small screen. Even in the more extreme examples like Park Chan-wook, the brilliant Korean director making Little Drummer Girl for AMC, that was a, a cinematic artist working within a genre, which was what made it really exciting and thrilling. I can't think of a, exam, a, a, a comparison to the Underground Railroad other than maybe Twin Peaks The Return, in which an artist, and I mean that with all the heaviness it implies, just is handed a budget and hours of television to do with what he wants. Mm-hmm. Because this is not, it's not just that it's not hand-holding. I mean, this isn't in any fashion, at least through one episode, traditional narrative TV making. This is gorgeous, it is challenging, it is powerful, it is profound, and it is so deeply driven by images that I don't even almost know how to to classify it or qualify it. So I just kind of wanted to start there by saying, oh my God, this is Mm -hmm. God-level filmmaking, and we're covering it like a TV show? It's a TV show? I'm not even sure. This is the first thing since Twin Peaks to give me pause and say, I got to step outside of what we normally do to even consider it. Yeah, you know, I have to admit, it's not unlike, it's a completely different reaction. It's obviously completely different content. But it reminds me of the feeling that I had when uh, Nicholas Winning Refn released Too Old to Die Young on Amazon Prime. To okay, much it's less, probably like that. I did not watch but to that. Much, but that's to much less fanfare, obviously. And I think that there are six people out there who think Too Old to Die Young is good and you're on a podcast with one of them. But it just reminded me of that where it was like, you're you're in the presence of like, a very distinctive, very singular vision. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I, I want to start there by just saying, I know we've started. I want to continue there by saying, I think Barry Jenkins is just like a miracle. I think he's a beautiful, beautiful, sensuous f- filmmaker. So I'm excited to, for anything that he does. I would also say, for people who haven't started the journey yet, that it's unquestionably, especially the first episode, Georgia, is at times punishing to watch. That's partially the intention. Personally, I found it really uh, helpful to, not necessary by any stretch, but I think I found it helpful to listen to a really wonderful interview that Barry did with Terry Gross, Barry and Terry, classic combo, on Fresh Air last week, in which he directly talks about how his own relationship to filming scenes of excruciating trauma and what he felt and what Colson Whitehead, the writer, felt about feeling a responsibility or even feeling an obligation to once again depict horrific, obscene acts of violence to black bodies on the screen and what that meant for him personally and for the cast and the crew and to be shooting these things. And to hear him talk really helps put this first episode and the series in a context that I'm grateful for about what motivated him and the types of story he wanted to tell and the types of images he wanted to put on screen. And like all of his work, it, it, it almost feels cheapening to be watching it, for me anyway, I'm not sure how everyone else feels this way, but it took a second to be like, this is the same couch I watch Girls 5 Eva on. Yeah. Now I'm going to watch Underground Railroad. And yeah, it's not just because- Yeah, that's the weird thing about the collapsing of all, mm-hmm. of all pop culture experiences into the, this personal screen situation. And, and it's not just because of the specific uh, horrors that are on display in the first episode. It's also- it's very avant-garde at times in its direction, in, way, in, in where the camera is, in the way the camera regards its subjects, and the way the subjects sometimes turn and regard the camera. But more than anything else, to watch a Barry Jenkins anything is to be completely subsumed into a world where color and light seem hyper-real. Mm-hmm. Where I mean, imagine if Kevin Feige saw what's going on in camera in the show. I mean, he would just have his mind blown. No CGI. And yeah. also in Georgia. Um the the sound design in this is so exemplary. The cicadas or crickets or whatever they are. I'm sorry, I'm not a naturalist. But you feel the heat. You feel the sense of place in a way that is unlike anything I've ever seen, particularly about the subject matter. Um, and it's it's heavy. I mean, I don't know how else how else to say it. Yeah, but. you know, I mean, they they say that action is character. In some ways, I think in the world of Barry Jenkins, like portraiture is character. You know, he does this these amazing character portraits, shots of people staring straight into the camera that wind up filling in kind of um, parts of a character and parts of the narrative that maybe the writing is is 
purposely eschewing, you know, like instead of getting necessarily every single beat of Korra's backstory, which come out piecemeal throughout the first episode. And, and I'm, I'm sure further into the series, uh, Korra, the sort of main character of the story, you're kind of, you spend a lot of time like seeing her. And, and I, I, I thought mm-hmm. a lot about, because I think when you go into a, a work by such a notable director, you just think about every choice as this was purposeful. And maybe something happened on the day and they had to do it this way or that way. But I just feel like whatever I'm seeing on the screen when Barry Jenkins is directing, I should probably be thinking about why I'm seeing that thing and what impact it's having on me. Yeah, and I think that was also what what helped by refamiliarizing myself with him personally and his worldview in that interview. Because, um, and and we should say, I, I I'm I apologize. I was remiss for people who aren't familiar with the book or the series. It is a kind of an audacious reimagining of the slavery era of America, in which the Underground Railroad, which of course in reality was just a clandestine network of people who were sympathetic to the cause of liberation and abolition, who were ferrying escaped slaves out of the South to the North. In Colson Whitehead's vision, there's an actual train that runs mm-hmm. underground. And so it's, it is true, but it is not true what we're seeing. And it follows the escape of an enslaved woman named Cora, whose mother had left her for freedom years before as she gets on the train, leaving Georgia and passing through different states. Different states, that's probably a good, uh, both literally true and figuratively true for the series. But to, but to go back to what I was saying about Barry Jenkins's worldview, just to hear him talk about what mattered to him in terms of showing enslaved people in this country as um, skilled craftsmen and caretakers. And this idea of the most, I think, paraphrasing, but this era is one of the most radical performances of caregiving and parenting in history because hundreds of thousands and millions of basically displaced people without connection to their parents who may have been, they may have been separated from, but still giving care to the next generation. it's very moving to hear him talk about it and it helps frame it because I can't imagine that there are people who tune into this first episode and are for good reason. Um, it's, it, it's brutalizing to mm-hmm. watch some of it, but it's also uplifting and beautiful and deeply challenging. So I think that's also why we are in awe of what we've seen so far, but want to be patient with it and not, it, it's not really a let's recap episode two kind of show. No, no. I think we'll probably, we'll, we'll hit on it a couple of times over the next couple of weeks and we'll try to give folks a heads up uh, when we do so. And and I, I'm, I'm obviously like, I'm really looking forward to it because it seems like a huge achievement just off the first two episodes. It's really worth your time. And it's just also in terms of tying it into the larger conversation that we're, that we're trying to maintain. He's, he's so interesting because he's so talented and he broke through wonderfully and deservedly so with Moonlight when it won Best Picture. I think Beale Street is an exceptional movie, his, his second film in many ways. And now he's making this, but he's also, as we talked about before, uh, making the, the new Lion King movie with Disney. Mm-hmm. And, you know, watching artists and filmmakers like him and Chloe Zhao do this hopefully additive two-step, right? Where they make these challenging, beautiful tone poems, but then also go over to slide all over to Disney. And, and I think the key thing is in these cases, and we'll see going forward, they're not going to Disney hat in hand. Disney's coming to them and saying, can you give us some of what you do? You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because at the end of the first episode, when the, when the train comes, it's, mm-hmm. you know, among the dozen, two dozen, three dozen striking images in that first episode, there's this shot of this train arriving and all these like dust particles or whatever in this tunnel are backlit and illuminated and it's just this you know the, the Bertel music comes on and you see Cora see this train and there's mm-hmm. like a l- little little movement and you know Barry Jenkins is very open about his influences he's talked a lot about Wong Kar Wai and and I think that there there's obvious comparisons to be made to lots of other great filmmakers but the the one that jumped out at me in that one scene was Spielberg that that was it was like a Spielbergian kind of moment of discovery and hope and awe as this mythical kind of machine arrives to deliver these two people. And that, that, that idea that he's going to go on to make uh, this blockbuster piece of IP, maybe it's not as far-fetched as you would think. No, and then, I, I won't spoil it, but then there's a needle drop when the credits start that almost lifted me out of my skin. Sure. So yeah. it's, 
It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's yeah. exciting. It's an exciting uh, project, and one day we will fully push, you know, explore this de Medici Renaissance thing. But where Amazon is like, okay, and great, kudos to them. Pay your workers more, but thank you for paying Barry Jenkins to do this. Should we talk a little bit about hacks before we get to? Um, yes. Before we get to Mayor, yeah. So this is a new comedy on HBO Max from Paul Downs and Lucia and and Yellow and Jen Statsky, and uh, it stars the sort of patron saint of HBO right now, Gene Smart, as a, I don't know if I would say washed up, but definitely kind of retiring comedian, kind of a little bit Roseanne, a little bit Joan Rivers, living in Las Vegas, making money on QVC, selling moo-moos and, and different <laughs> appliances, and doing a residency in a win-like casino uh, in Vegas. And uh, she is visited eventually by um, by a, a like an up and coming comedy writer named Ava, who's kind of down on her luck, but and looking for a gig. And she moves out to Vegas to write one liners for Deborah, played by Gene Smart. And it is this kind of buddy comedy uh, set in a very very unique and specific world of fat off the land Vegas, but still kind of spiritually bankrupt. And the first few episodes went up. I got a chance to see three of them. And Andy, I know you've watched uh, the, the first two. What did you think? I love the show. I loved it. I loved it quickly. I fell for it hard. It's one of those shows where the second you're introduced to the world, you're like, oh yeah, there's meat on this bone. Like there's a lot here and you get excited. You get excited not just because you're liking the performances and the performances are fantastic or you're liking the humor and it's very funny. You're excited because you're like, this could this could go. Mm-hmm. There's places for this to go. I can't wait to spend more time here. And I I didn't expect it. You know, this is, for as much as we complain about there being just endless stream of content, like, I don't think I learned about this show until I got a press email from HBO a month ago. I, I, I was not on my radar. I didn't know that and Yellow and Downs had made a show with Statsky and Mike Schur producing it and made a show for HBO Max and that Gene Smart who has just been so reliably exceptional on so many shows over the last few years, Fargo, Legion, um, Watch, Watchmen, Watchmen, Mayor of Easttown, and now just getting this star turn that, you know, on some level she's been waiting her whole career for. I loved it. And I would also compare it in some ways to, or at least bring up the show we raved about last week, a comedy, a completely different kind of comedy, which was Girls 5 Eva on Peacock. Mm-hmm which I continue to love and just think is a brilliant, shiny joke machine. This isn't a shiny joke machine, although the jokes are good. This has that extra piece, you know, of, of, of pathos, of emotion, of a little bit of drama um, that allows you, I think, to fall in kind of a, a deeper love with it. And maybe that's, obviously, it's a credit to the Paul Downs and Lucia Agnello's taste. It's a little bit of the Mike Schur influence, you know, potentially, or at least that may have what maybe why the project appealed to him but it's just a knockout and it's that rare thing where oh there are two episodes okay we'll try one and then all of a sudden i'd watch 10 the hbo max well ran dry i was gonna blow look you know i love my bedtime i would have blown past it for this show (laughs) um you know i was thinking especially with girls five eva which is very much has like a very defined world but is that tina fey meredith scardino obviously wrote or created girls five eva but that carlock fey style of how many jokes per minute can we squeeze into the margins of like sight gag, secondary joke, reference, like sight, you know, like another visual gag. Um, Hacks has it more in terms of depth of detail in the world that they're living in, which is essentially like, and I, I can't remember if this happens in the first two episodes, but uh, Deborah Vance has a uh, soft drink dispenser in her, in her mansion. And, and that's in the second episode. And you're just like, somehow they, they found that out about, people who have these giant McMansions in the middle of the desert where they have to pay a ton for their water usage. And mm-hmm. and this is the kind of shit that people start to buy for themselves when they kind of don't have something in their life really worth giving to. You know what I mean? Like they just start like making their life so sort of perfectly ordered and like wrapped around their own desires. And it's such a perfect detail. You know what I mean? Like I just, I thought it was such like a thoughtful, smart thing to have. And she's like, you know, it's not like it's like, here's this really sweet person who meets an, a sort of scabbed older personality and shows her the way of love and life. It's like, in a lot of ways, I think 
Deborah Vance, the Deborah Vance character, like is much more self-assured and knows who she is than the younger person who's yeah. come into her life, which is like, kind of like flips it a little bit. Yeah, the I mean, you mentioned Hannah Einbender, who I'd never encountered before, plays the younger character, and she's really strong. And um, there's a potential trap where every show has to be a little bit relevant. You know, a, a big word that's in meetings, studio meetings these days is noisy. What's noisy about this? Like, what what's going to pop? What's going to make it get that, you know, you go girl or you go guy kind of reception on, yeah. on Twitter or the larger cultural blogosphere that can go horribly wrong. But when you tap into an idea that is pure and relevant and interesting and simple, like they have here, it's going to work. And I think the idea here is simply, I mean, you mentioned that the character, Hannah Einbender's character has been canceled basically for a tweet and is down on her luck. And to her, I mean, it's the name of the show. The Deborah Vance character is a hack. Mm-hmm. Um, what the show reveals, and again, this isn't rocket science, but what it reveals with, I think, actual thought and care and respect is that to become a Deborah Vance who you think of as a hack in 2020 or whenever the show is supposed to be set, you have to work so hard and you have to, you have to give up so much and you have to endure so much. And the show treats that work ethic of the older person with real respect and with real dignity. And by so doing, creates a pretty interesting example of the different strains and eras of feminism in America. Mm-hmm. And I th- just think it does so in super good faith and with a lot of genuine curiosity. And so it is, surprisingly, it's a little, it, it's a little noisy in that sense. But it's also wonderful. And yeah. I think that that's a trickier balance to pull off than, than people might think. I think that's a great way of putting it. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about Mare. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, we're back. We're going to talk about the fifth episode of Mare. If you haven't seen it, I would not listen to this segment since something very significant happened. Thank God Kai has listened to, has watched this episode of, of Mare. Has she? Kai, have you watched it? Yes, I watched it last night. Okay, thank God. <laughs> thank you, Kaya, for your service to TV because we would hate to do this to you. So first question, Andy, do we re- rename the McBain the Zable? Thank you for that. So I wanted to begin there too. Great episode. Love the show. However... When did you know? At, <laughs> at the dinner. Yeah. At the dinner. At the dinner at the Kennett Square restaurant. Yeah. I think that Evan Peters was one more uh, Johnny Walker away from taking out a picture of the boat he bought for his mom called Live Forever. Yeah. I don't have many uh, parlor tricks. You know, I, I can juggle, but I can't pull coins out of people's ears. I think the best parlor trick I have is the ability to, 28 minutes into the episode... <laughs> when Mare and Zabler are having dinner, turning to my wife and saying, he's not surviving this hour. <laughs> and her saying, what? Now it is a flex. It's, I'm bragging now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I am, I am proud of that. And then 
10 minutes later when he's just like, you don't know what I want. Let me explain my hopes and dreams to you. Yeah. Okay. My wife, Phoebe, texted me after she watched the episode separately from me because we're, we're in different cities right now. Um, traveling. We're not separated. Um, and we, we Breaking watch, news. We, we watched it separately. And uh, she texted me, said, is he dead? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you, you're, it's very sweet that you would even wonder. I guess that's just Game of Thrones brain where it was like, well, we didn't see Stannis get chopped up. So who knows? Yep. Stannis but, is still out there. He's like the, the Russian and the Pine Barons. I think I can definitively say that Colin Zabel is not coming back next week. Look, this was a really interesting episode. I think it was in some ways the saddest of, of a very dark and depressing and, and, and really heartbreaking piece of work in general. But the thing I wanted to kind of jump off of here was how different it was from the other episodes. And I think yes. we had a taste of this last week. But Andy and I think a lot about how to tell crime stories and how to tell mysteries. We've read a ton of mysteries and crime thrillers We've obviously watched a lot of them and thought a lot about them, and we're by no means experts, but I think we recognize when people do different things. And what Inglesby and Zobel did here in this episode of Mare is essentially deviate from the POV of the series up until this point. So there was a little bit of that in the last episode, but a lot of it in episode five, Illusions, where we are going into rooms and sticking with characters for longer periods of time to see more important narrative discoveries than we had up until then. It was Mayor of Easttown. It was seeing the world through Kate Winslet's eyes. When, you know, we, we only saw Richard when Kate Winslet saw Richard. We only saw Zabel. Now we don't see Richard at all. Exactly. We'll you know, but we do now in this episode, Illusions, you go into Lori's kid's bedroom and hear her husband say, it's just our secret. We go into the rectory or whatever with you know, uh, Neil and, and Mark and hear these conversations between these two guys. We see Dylan and Brianna and Dylan and Jess talking in intimate ways that we previously had only seen if they were being interrogated by Mayor and Zabel, you know? And so I think it's a pretty interesting, just, I, I'm just curious whether or not you noticed it and whether you thought it was warranted, whether you thought it was like a strange, like, it wasn't obviously breaking the fourth wall, but it was. It seemed to break its own rules a little bit in this episode. I did notice it. Um, I loved it, and I think it it it's connected to the the point I w I may have struggled to make last week, which was how unique Mare is in terms of being a ostensibly single season, not single mystery, because as we learned last night, there were two that are potentially unrelated, but a event series about with a you know Oscar winning star that is equally committed to community building and being a you know being a large ensemble cast i think it pays off enormously because some light criticism of the show in the first episode or second episode was just about how incestuous it seemed how everyone was on top of each other or related to someone i mean mm -hmm. that is the work of the show that's the theme of the show and because of that it very cleverly built up our investment in multiple characters tertiary even beyond characters um college so radio we, djs sure why not yeah. have for yeah. college robust robust radio scenes still after all these years we even you know, took a few tentative steps into the modern culture media department of Cal Berkeley, as it's absolutely always called. Definitely what people call that college. <laughs> um, but all of it uh. is in service of the sense that this is a community that is ravaged by addiction, sadness, depression, mental health, you know, everything. And I think that that really pays off on, a, on an episode like this that then has to, because mystery shows always have to, reach into the old trick bag, right? And like uh, McBain, a major character, for example, mm -hmm. or make it plain that, um, you know, or, or have red herrings and misdirects, like the guy has a beard. Oh, so now in this episode where we find out that Laurie's husband is cheating on her, suddenly he's a suspect. Sure. Is this the broad searching of it? Well, all of those sorts of things that might feel like tricks or manipulation in a lesser show, I think are subsumed into the larger shared narrative about this region, which is what the show is more interested in. So I, I noticed it, but I also noticed it as a active choice to accomplish the storytelling goals that I think that Brad Inglesby and Craig Zobel had for the series. Yeah. I mean, you know, a couple of times over the course of the show, they have 
I think really edged up to the line, but still wound up being very sensitive and delicate with the story when it gets up to the point of this, this guy could be a predator. You know what I mean? Like they've, they did that with Frank. They did that with Mm -hmm. Deacon Mark. I think a lot of people intuited that mayor's cousin, you know, the, the, the other priest might have some, some dark secrets. And obviously with um, Kenny's two cousins, both behaving incredibly badly in front of their wives and police officers, uh, not not the brightest thing. Uh, people are suspicious of Richard. And, you know, that moment where Lori's husband is like, this is just our secret. I think you assume the worst. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that you're supposed to assume he's getting his son to keep his mouth closed about an affair that he's having. You're, I think you, you, you're, you're worried about sexual abuse there. And, you know, I think that your mileage may vary about whether or not you feel jerked around by that. I did not. I think that this show is really, really so deeply attached to its characters that the characters somehow have dignity when he, when even they're doing undignified things. So I think that that's also been true of a lot of like these secondary characters that you reference, which sometimes in a lesser show might feel like they were like filling out the time, mm-hmm. like the Dylan plot line or the Siobhan love affair. I think they each have their purposes. You know what I mean? The Dylan thing is like, what do you owe somebody when you're not still married to them and you might not be the father of their child? What the Siobhan thing is, can love possibly blossom in a place that seems like it basically like douses love with weed killer anytime it pops up, you know? Like there are reasons for all of these plot lines. Yeah, I think also the show is made with a great deal of empathy, which you can which you can tell. The characters um, aren't action figures to be manipulated for the goals of playing whodunit with Reddit, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that... The show's overall project, and this is something I think we talked about in week one, was basically to highlight all the little deaths ordinary people can suffer on the way to or in place of a uh, shocking headline grabbing murder. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as Mayor says, like, you don't want any of this. And she lists three things that could bring any person to their knees that just are her every day. You know, and so whether it's, you know, Beth's home life that we got a glimpse of last week or her brother's just absolutely abject existence or any of it. I mean, the extremity is going to get the attention and the extremity is driving the show. But that's not really what we're being shown here and what we're being asked to empathize with along with the creators. And I, and I think that to that end, what appears to me to be a, again, this is all, this is smart construction but i also think it's it's effective storytelling but what appears to be the misdirect that there are two crimes there was this guy who mm-hmm. had a bar who was kidnapping and abusing women and then there's the aaron story and i really if this is where it's headed i don't feel jerked around by that at all i really admire Me that we got this biz, you know kind of um bizarre dark crime thing that resolved you know again pretty horrifically in some ways last night and then it's like a two episode coda while they're still trying to figure out what happened to Aaron kind and of. now we still need to find out what happened to what launched the show to begin with and I think that's well well done well played will you feel jerked around if the sixth episode starts with the chief telling Mare she is definitively off the case she is in fact fired right. and Hauser takes over the entire show and then there is like a Hauser of Ridge Avenue sequel um, no, I think that sounds right. I think that that's the show we've been watching. Um, it is, it is a question how Mary can keep her job or whether she should at this yeah. point. Um, I mean, is the implication, do you think that she's going to be blamed for this? Well, but she also solved the case. You know, I think that was, it's a little unorthodox. It's a little cowboy. Again, this is the sort of stuff that on a lesser show we would be harping on on the podcast, which is why do they cowboy up and just do this themselves why mm-hmm. don't they immediately radio for backup why don't they extricate themselves? i mean what there's a whole that kind of nitpicking is what you do when you don't sure. actually emotionally feel connected to the show we do so it's fine with me there's a version of it where she i mean she got katie back yeah. right she, she did and that's that's not that's not nothing i i would like to talk briefly about what's going coming still to come but i think we should eulogize not just detective zabel but, but evan peters I mean, this was a plus plus performance. This was, you could not ask for anything more for an actor coming in and just 
doing donuts in the lawn of a show being headlined by an Oscar winner. He was, uh, and kind of, on some level, revelatory. I mean, he's a really good actor. He, everyone knows that he's a good actor and he's funny on WandaVision or whatever, but I didn't know he was capable of being just electric like this right up until the end. He was incredible. I kind of got the feeling like his participation in the show was a stand-in for how much I love it. Because on paper, <laughs> he's just happy to be there. Yeah, and like, he just wants to like be on the show for four episodes and give Kate Winslet a kiss. You know what I mean? Like that, that is like, I love the show. And it's like, if you offered me a chance to just be a part of it and Evan Peters maybe doesn't change his like career because of this show on paper, but I kind of feel like he might've just based on like what he actually did with the part. The oh, part, he leveled up. No yeah. Question. The part is not, the part is not a game changing part, but I think he read it. And he was like, I have to do this. I have to be a part of a show this good, you know? And he's had five times more screen time than Guy Pierce. I'm still trying to figure the Guy Pierce element out. And essentially became the heart of the show in the second act of the series, in the second act of the season. He's, his, his journey, while tragic, is so nakedly vulnerable. And in a lot of ways, like, he and Mare both go through this sort of like steps of self-discovery, Mare with her grief counselor and Mare and Zabel with his mom. And I just love the fact that like, you know, in every part where you think you know about some, like something about someone, mm -hmm. there is like a little bit of humanity that changes. Like his mother is not like an overbearing mother who doesn't think anybody's good enough for his son. Like she also is like thrilled that Mare likes her son. You know what I mean? Like there's just like a little bit of like, dynamism and re and 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 humanity to every single character on the screen no matter how small or big the part is but yeah like i think that like in some ways evan peters's participation in this is is kind of like yeah like why wouldn't you do this why wouldn't you want to be a part of a show like this it's it's up and down the call sheet though i mean they're actors like I, i'm calling him laurie's husband I, I think that actor is great i love seeing him on screen but all these actors are are elevating to such a degree that this is the HBO model. This is such a successful iteration of it because there's this heavy side plot and it's all hanging on Julianne Nicholson's face. And there are far worse faces, you know. Shout out, to her, shout out to her Phillies jersey. Oh my God, that was love at first. I think they were watching Villanova too. It was, that was a pretty thrilling moment. But she can pull that off. I mean, Gene Smart playing the scene where she gets outed as having an affair with a guy at his wife's uh, wake. I mean, it's it's hilarious. And it's it's just major league work from everybody across the board. I do want to give a small shout out to a, just the experience of watching this because I, I'm not sure. So there was there was some rumblings that this was a big episode. Yes. And then Alan Sepinwall, great critic, tweeted as much basically being like, you're going to want to watch this one live. So when you see that, you get that little extra pep in your step and you definitely are, are psyched to watch it. You hopefully turn off the Twitter machine as soon as things start. airing. I, I, I start, I'm going to start tweeting that about Chip and Joanna episodes, especially the Waco centered ones. <laughs> They're <laughs> are, all, are they Waco all Waco centered brother. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> and what made that fun was it really felt like not old fashioned TV, but old fashioned we still had a podcast TV where it was Sunday night, got a little buzz, not from Rolling Rocks, unfortunately, but just in terms of excitement and anticipation. And then the episode begins in such an off-kilter way, and there's the power outage, and I love power outages. And, you know, you go around the town, everybody's in the dark, and I'm just, it's thrilling. I was yeah. already into the show, but watching it on my TV on Sunday night, knowing something was coming, especially in the 25 minutes before I knew what it was going to be, gave it that kind of just crackle that you cannot manufacture and i'm sorry for streaming shows it's not their fault but you cannot manufacture that when it's episode six of something on netflix and you're deciding to watch it or going to bed but maybe you know there's some leftover burrito and you want to finish it so you're going to push forward and then you have no one to talk to about it like this was right. this was the way it used to be and it really felt good because of it so what do you want from the last two um i as a Fan of the whole thing, not just what's on screen. I would like to find out if Guy Pierce was interning at the Utz Potato Chip Factory, you know, or maybe he was a spectator at the Devin Horse Show. Not the character, the actor, because maybe he was just during COVID. He, maybe he was just like toughing out COVID in Pennsylvania. You know, is he like writing a Scranton Red Barons blog? Like, what's he? That's what I, <laughs> right. My point is, like, does he have a regional connection so that he was just around and yeah. was like, sure, I'll take this part. My guess is no. But 
could be, could be. I will just reiterate what I've said before about the show. It's the most blessed feeling. I don't really care. I'm not, I'm not thinking about it. I just can't wait till the next episode. And also, I mean, if you told me that the, that the mystery of Aaron's murder was solved in the first half of the sixth episode, and then we had an Mm -hmm. episode and a half left of Kate Winslet and Guy Pierce trying to figure out what to do with the rest of their lives. And, Kate Winslet maybe even coming to some sort of place of forgiveness and peace with her daughter-in-law. Great. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. You know, I, I think that would be an, an incredible development. I, I don't have, I don't have like a deep desire. I, I, I think that the, given the way the show has been going and the fact that Jess, I think sincerely is, was best friends with Aaron. I think what we're supposed to take from the Dylan and Jess going to find the diaries and Dylan being like, we said we wouldn't read them mm-hmm. was that that was an act of friendship rather than some sort of like covering our tracks kind of thing. But she took a cell phone pick of a she page did. that's going to lead to whatever. But I, I guess last question, Chris, as I'm sure all our listeners know and care, the Philadelphia 76ers secured the number one seed in the East heading into they, the NBA playoffs. Did. Is there a more attractive scenario to you in terms of like watching game one? than at Mare's place with unlimited yinglings and a Tacanelli's pizza on the table like that. Yes and no. I mean, like that vibe is definitely what I'm looking for, except for uh, Billy being like, "Uh, yeah, uh, you know, like she just came and lived with me for three weeks. I got to go to this fundraiser now. It's like, Billy, you're going to a fundraiser. Also, he just opened a new beer. That was the giveaway. That was a great, great detail. That guy was, uh, that guy wasn't keeping it Has anyone in the history of Easttown ever left a full beer? That was it. I mean, that was Chekhov's Rolling Rock. Come on. Uh, We will be back on Thursday night, Friday morning with our Top Chef recap. We'll also have some fun stuff for uh, fans of For All Mankind. So if you're a fan of that show, be sure to tune in on the the second episode of The Watch. But long promised, we got to deliver the Duzium edition of our our Bureau Deep Dive. We're recording that, I think, tomorrow or Wednesday. So that'll be up midweek. And we'll cover seasons three and four. And then we wrap things up with uh, season five and hopefully a really exciting guest for that one. This seems like a good plan. I feel like we got it. Yeah. Uh, just like just like going into Bonnie's Tavern with one gun between us. No, I, I can't foresee anything going wrong here. Uh, Greenwald, I'll talk to you soon. Great job, Brianskis. <laughs>